0: Welcome to the Oxford Undergraduate Law Podcast, where we discuss the law, its relationships with society, and its implications on our everyday lives. I'm Chun. I'm Dorothea, and we are your podcast editors. Today, we'll be joined by Professor Susan Bright, who'll be speaking about the legal issues the housing sector is still confronted with five years on from Grenfell, and the continuing impact the crisis has on leaseholders who are still in these flats with fire safety issues. Professor Susan Bright's ongoing research focuses on the complexities stemming from multi-owned property. This includes exploring the fire safety problems emerging after the tragic events of Grenfell, particularly in relation to blocks of flats. Professor Bright has also set up a blog called Housing After Grenfell for discussion of these issues, as well as for conversations around housing and the law more generally. Professor Bright, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me, particularly as at the time of recording, we're now approaching a really important anniversary of the fire at Grenfell Tower and there's been such little progress made over the years, it's good to have an opportunity to sort of pause and reflect on it. And I also just want to add, before we get going, how grateful I am for the effort and thought that you've put into this about thinking about um, the sort of issues that we'll be discussing. So thank, thank you very much.
0: I couldn't agree more. And in light of the five year anniversary of Grenfell, this discussion is needed. So thank you again. It's now the fifth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower fire. Perhaps you could start by explaining why you think there's still so much attention on the fire safety crisis.
1: Mm, yes. So I think I think what's useful is to begin actually with a recap of what happened at Grenfell Tower itself, and this is going to be a-, a difficult reminder I think for a lot of people who've been impacted by it. But on the 14th of June 2017, a fire broke out in the kitchen of a flat in the Grenfell Tower on the fourth floor, and The fire itself was caused by a malfunctioning fridge-freezer and it spread from there to the window of the flat, broke through the window, or the surrounds of the window, and very rapidly it then spread both up and across the external walls of the tower. And as we know, it very tragically led to the loss of at least 72 lives. Within days, what became quite clear was that the problem of why the fire spread so rapidly was the cladding that had been used on the tower when it had been refurbished in 2016. Now, the particular cladding that was used on Grenfell Tower is a product known as ACM, which stands for Aluminium Composite Material. And this has what's called a polyethylene core. And essentially what cladding is, is it's two two sheets of metal, which has a a very thin core material between the two sheets of metal and and that core material is highly combustible so peter apps who's a a a journalist who's done some really fantastic work on following this the story he wrote in the inside housing magazine that the plastic in the middle will burn like solid petrol in the event of a fire so obviously grenfell tower fire was alarming for many reasons, including for making people wonder what about other buildings that have used the same materials. So fairly quickly there was an exercise to try and um, see how many other high rise residential buildings had the same material on, and since then we've identified around 500 high rise residential publicly owned buildings that do have ACM cladding. And these are thought to be the highest risk category and have been the priority in terms of getting the cladding taken off and replaced. But even so, five years on, there are still around 25 high-rise buildings that have not even started work on replacing this ACM cladding. So that's sort of where the story begins and continues, but it's not the end of the problem, because it soon became clear that it was wrong to focus only on high-rise buildings, that is, buildings of 18 metres or more, and only on ACM cladding. Since the fire at Grenfell Tower, there have been other residential fires that have destroyed blocks, which are neither above the 18 metre point, nor have ACM cladding. And what's become clear is that the fire safety issues are widespread in modern blocks of flats. So other types of cladding have also been found to be combustible, particularly some which is called HPL, which is high pressure laminate cladding and timber cladding systems. And as well as the cladding, there have been problems with insulation and insulation is the layer that lies behind the cladding on the building. That it's the layer that's there to provide thermal protection and so on. A lot of that insulation, which is used in a lot of modern building, is plastic based, so therefore is combustible. And this was also a problem at Grenfell Tower. So these are problems that are to do with the actual materials that are used on the building. But but what we've discovered as we've begun to investigate these is that there are all sorts of other problems with the construction of these buildings as well that create fire safety problems. So these these blocks of flats are are meant to be built with what we call cavity barriers in them. And these are basically blocks or barriers that are meant to prevent the spread of fire internally. So if there is a fire that breaks out in, in a block of flats, it's contained. But as we've begun to look at these buildings, we see that often these cavity barriers were not installed. So how many people are affected? We don't really know. But it's been estimated that maybe around 11 million people are caught up in the mess. The London Fire Brigade has recently said that it's extremely concerning that more than 1,000 residential buildings in the capital still have fair, uh, serious fire safety failings. So if we go back to your question, why is there so much attention still on this? Well, it's because there are a lot of buildings affected. It's going to take a lot of money to fix it, and no one knows yet how much. There have been figures used of around £15 billion, but some people are saying we really should be thinking of up to £100 billion. And because of the large number of buildings and the high costs, this is affecting a lot of people who just can't move on with their lives. And so there's a lot of attention being given to this in social media and the national media and it's filling up MPs' inboxes so the story is far from over. Thank you for giving us that overview
0: of the crisis and clarifying exactly why the crisis has this continuing and widespread impact. What kind of impact does the crisis have on people living in these buildings with fire safety issues and owning flats in them?
1: For those living in or owning flats in the affected blocks, the impact is huge. So so let's just start by thinking about costs. So sometimes they have to pay for the installation of a fire alarm. This is necessary to alert them in the event of a fire so that they know to evacuate. Another serious problem that's arisen is the cost of insurance for the building. So insurance costs have absolutely soared since the fire safety crisis has emerged. For some buildings, it's reportedly gone up more than 1000%. But the even bigger costs will be the longer term costs of fixing the building, remediation costs. So the interim measures, waking watch, fire alarm and so on, they're only meant to be a stopgap whilst the problems with the building itself get sorted. So for example, replacing the cladding and the insulation, installing missing cavity barriers. And you can, as you can imagine, this is gonna be really expensive. So individual flat owners have been sent bills of five-figure sums to cover remediation costs, often considerably in excess of £50,000. And sadly, in some buildings, when they start poking around to investigate the fire safety problems, they've discovered that there are other even more serious structural problems for the building. So the cost of this crisis financially is huge. And that has an inevitable impact on the well-being of people living in these buildings. The negative impact on well-being cannot be overstated. It's absolutely massive. It's been described by leaseholders as catastrophic, devastating and traumatic. For most, it's not actually the risk of fire that's the major source of anxiety now, but the multiple intersecting worries, the financial impacts. The uncertainty around whether the building is ever going to get sorted. Trying to navigate complex technical and legal information. Feeling that there's no one there to help them through the crisis. So it's not just the technical side of things, but they're asking questions about, well, who's actually going to fix the building? When is it going to happen? And a lot, lot of them have become campaigners trying to get this brought to the government's attention much more. People feel trapped in homes that they can't sell or mortgage, they're stuck. Some of them have become bankrupt, for many life decisions have had to be put on hold, they're not able to move to take up a new job offer, or to care for relatives, or to get somewhere bigger for a growing family. So there has been some research that's been done into this. Dr Jenny Priest at the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence carried out some interviews to explore the impact the crisis has had on people. She found that individuals face thoughts about cladding and building safety problems, intruding into their minds throughout the day, being unable to think about anything else, resulting in some cases in treatment for anxiety, depression and suicidal feelings. So let me, let me give you just a few quotes, if I can, from her interviews. I could lose everything that I've ever worked for. Some days I've thought that when the bill for doing the work lands and it's too much, I'll jump out of the window. I'm just constantly worrying about it. I can't plan for the future. I'd like to plan to have another child, but that choice has been taken out of my hands. So these quotes from her interviews, they echo findings from a survey that had been done by one of the campaign groups called UK Cladding Action Group a couple of years ago. So here's some of their findings from their survey. 90% of respondents said that their mental health had deteriorated. 23% reported having suicidal feelings or a desire to self-harm. 71% reported having difficulty sleeping. 94% said they were suffering from worry and anxiety. 60% had had to use coping strategies to deal with their situation. 35% said that existing physical and mental health conditions had been exacerbated. And 84% said they cannot move on with their lives. That was a couple of years ago, but for many, none of this will have changed. And indeed, it may just have got worse for them. And so, as a result... The campaign groups have been very important. The UK Cladding Action Group that I mentioned doing the survey, the End Air Cladding Scandal campaign and other more locally based campaign groups. So if we return back to the question that you asked, the impact on those affected is massive and it dominates every aspect of their lives.
0: Thank you for that powerful insight into the mental wellbeing impact of actually living through the crisis. I can see how it would be easy to overlook the severity of mental harm faced by the victims. Professor Bright, if we now move on to some of the causes of the crisis. For some commentators, deregulation emerges as a key cause of the grandfather crisis. Would you argue that this is the case and is it changing?
1: So it's clear that not only poor regulatory standards but also poor enforcement of them have made significant contributions to the problems that we're now facing. And at the risk of an overgeneralisation, there are two broad issues. The first is that the materials that have been used should never have been allowed. And second problem is that developers have cut corners and often not done what they should have done. So, for example, not putting in cavity barriers is a clear negligent act on their part. So it might be worth, and this is where we're going to turn to a bit of law, if that's all right, starting with a brief overview of the controls that were in place. But we're going to start with some legislation. So under the Building Act of 1984, by Section 1, the Secretary of State has got power to make building regulations for the purposes of securing the health, safety, welfare and convenience of persons in or about buildings and others who may be affected by buildings. So this gives the Secretary of State then under the statutory provision power to make the regulations. And then let, let's have a, we're going to take us now to have a look at the regulations themselves and some of the headlines from those that, that relate to this. The first is Regulation 7. This says that building work should be carried out with adequate and proper materials and in a workmanlike manner. Regulation 4 says that building work should be carried out so that it complies with the applicable requirements in Schedule 1. So what does schedule one say? Well, there are two key provisions that we need to look at when we're looking at the kind of regulatory issues that we are. The first is B4. And B4 says that the external walls of the building shall adequately resist the spread of fire over the walls and from one building to another, having regard to the use and position of the building. So that looks at the exterior of the building. And then B3 looks at the interior. So B3 relates to the internal fire spread, which would lead to the need for perhaps cavity barriers and so on in appropriate contexts. So that's the scheme. We have the Building Act and then we have the Building Regulations, but we still need to drill down just a little bit further to see what the regulations say. So by Section 6 of the Building Act, the Secretary of State can also approve and issue what are called approved documents. And this has arguably been a big contributor to the fire safety problems. It does get very technical but let me give you one example. So the relevant approved document which was in place at the time the work was done on Grenfell Tower has a diagram that says materials cladding that meets a class zero standard can be used on these kind of tall buildings. So if you were following the approved documents as a a developer you could say that if you're installing class zero you are complying with the approved document but the problem is that materials that we now know to be combustible, such as the materials used on Grenfell Tower, can still meet that Class 0 test. So there have been lots of shocking discoveries since Grenfell. One is that the government itself had commissioned tests on cladding in 2001. Remember, Grenfell Tower fire was in 2017. So these tests were done in 2001, and one of these tests used ATM material, that's the material that was used on Grenfell Tower, But it showed that the system performed catastrophically, with flames reaching 20 metres high. And the test was stopped less than six minutes into its 30-minute duration, out of concern for the safety of those present. So what did the government do in response to that? Well, it did nothing. It left the Class Zero standard in the guidance until December 2018, which was 18 months after the Grenfell Tower fire. And this was despite earlier warnings from a select committee investigating cladding fires that recommended that the standard be replaced with a requirement that cladding panels be entirely non-combustible. So we've got the Grenfell Tower inquiry ongoing at present, and it's unearthing many of the problems that form the backdrop to, to why we are in the mess that we're currently in. Phase one of the Grenfell Tower inquiry focused on what happened on the night itself, what's what's referred to in the inquiry report as the factual narrative of the night. Phase one reported on the 30th of October 2019. And that report confirmed that the primary cause of the rapid spread of fire was the cladding system that had been installed when it was refurbished a couple of years earlier. Phase two of the inquiry is still underway, and that's examining how Grenfell Tower came to be in that condition And it's receiving evidence from a variety of industry and government personnel. And each week, there are some shocking discoveries. So, for example, the inquiry shows how an insulation manufacturer manipulated official testing and marketed products dishonestly. It shows how the building research establishment failed to warn government officials about catastrophic fire test results years before the Grenfell fire. And it shows how the government failed to amend building regulations, despite various experts having expressed deep concern about fire safety issues in blocks of flats, with recommendations that fire standards needed review. so you you also asked if things are changing? The answer to that is yes. There have been some regulatory changes already. So, for example, combustible cladding has been banned now on buildings over eighteen metres. There's also a new Building Safety Act that we'll talk a bit more later on about, which should lead to there being better information on high-rise buildings. There are also going to be some improved methods of holding developers accountable for poor workmanship, and again, we'll touch on this a bit later. But many experts think that we've still not done enough to improve standards going forward. So just to take two recent examples, we've still got so much to learn. So only this week, at the time of recording, There's been an outrage at the fact that the government has rejected a key recommendation from the Grenfell Tower Inquiry that all disabled tenants should be given a personal evacuation plan in the event of a fire. In January of this year, uh, again just another illustration, there was a planning application that was made for a 52-storey tower, so that's super high, a super high tower that would have only one staircase The planning officers had recommended approval of that application but there was a huge public outcry and so the developer withdrew the application so again if we look back at the question and what we're learning we see there are lots of intersecting problems we have poor regulatory guidance we have various people gaming the system and we also had poor enforcement
0: yes i can see that as you've explained the grenfell crisis was caused by a complex interplay of factors as well as the issue of poor regulatory standards. However, it seems that it is this complexity surrounding the causes of the crisis, which then has the effect of complicating the issue of liability. In your opinion, where does liability lie to fix the buildings?
1: That sounds like such a simple question, doesn't it? Where does the liability lie? And actually the answer is really complex. And let's just start by thinking about what the word liability might mean. So if we're looking at liability, we need to, I think, think about two aspects of it. The first is who has got the ability or the power to do the remediation, to fix the building. But then who's also got, if anyone has, a legal duty to do that. So I think both of these elements form part of that question about liability. And in order to answer it, we need to perhaps just step aside a little and think a little bit about how these buildings are owned. So this is sort of a bit of a landlord discussion here so if you take a block of flats the, the block of flats will be divided up into individual units dwellings where the residents live and the leaseholders the flat owners purchase their their interest of that that particular unit but around all of this we've got what we refer to as the common parts so these will be like the staircases the lifts the roof any external car parks entrance doors hallways and so on And also, importantly, in the context of what we're talking about, the external walls of the building. So you have this this physical structure where the legal technologies associated with it are dividing it up in different ways. So you get the flat owners will purchase an interest in their flat, which will be a long leasehold interest. And the building itself will be owned by a freeholder who retains the the common parts of the building. Now, that's a little bit simplistic because there are a huge number of variations on this model. But it's a helpful way, I think, of thinking about the fact that we need to distinguish between the external walls and the areas where the cavity barriers will be, which are going to be in the part of the building that is retained or owned by the freeholder or the landlord, and the leaseholders, the people who are living in the flats, don't have any legal interest in those parts of the building. They don't own any part of the building that needs remediation. Again, a little bit of a simplification, because some of the remediation may require works to be done to the, the individual flats as well. So in terms of who has got the power, the ability to do the remediation works, well, it's not the individual leaseholders, to coin to a phrase which is not that legally accurate, it's the building owner. So the building owner, the freeholder, is the person who can do the work. But the problem is how do you make them do the work? And actually this is a remarkably difficult question. There isn't always an easily enforceable legal duty. It may be that the Fire and Rescue Service can effectively enforce remediation of the building by serving a notice on the the building owner. But until the Building Safety Act comes into force, which it will do very shortly, There is no realistic way for leaseholders to compel the freeholder to fix the building. The Building Safety Act, which is coming into force in stages, it only got royal assent at the end of April, and the first tranche of its provisions come into force at the end of June. That will introduce a new route for this, which is called a remediation order. So under this, leaseholders and other people will be able to apply to a tribunal to ask for a remediation order which would essentially order the building owner to remediate but it's not yet in force and the details of this are still a little bit vague as to how it would work so that's looking at the liability question this isn't quite what you're asking but it's also just useful i think to think a little bit about what remediation would look like what is remediation on these buildings going to entail and the problem is it will involve all sorts of practical and technical challenges so most of these buildings are going to be lived in. So we're talking about fairly major intrusive works being done to them, stripping off potentially the cladding on the outside of the building, perhaps also stripping off the insulation layer, which immediately will leave the building exposed to the elements. So people who have who do, who do live in buildings where remediation has begun have, have, have written about the impact this is having on comfort, And the various ways it impacts on comfort. Firstly, they're very cold. They've no longer got that thermal layer of protection. And, of course, in these days of rising energy costs, this is very concerning. Then the other thing that happens is that because the building, once it's had the cladding and the insulation taken off, is now exposed to the elements, it is common for the person fixing it to put up this kind of sheeting over the outside so you see sort of the building has become now encased in this this i don't know what it is some form of plastic sheeting you see pictures on the media and on uh, social media and so on of people who are living inside these blocks and they they, they don't get any natural daylight they're just looking at the sheeting all of the time even even the process of remediation is having a big impact on people's lives and of course the cost of doing this is also going to be expensive so we've talked about that already a bit and i just just to sort of wrap this section up if the freeholder does remediate the building, fix the building, then it isn't the freeholder who will end up paying the bill. So under most leases, and again, this is a bit of a generalization, but under most leases, the freeholder is going to be able to pass on the costs of of fixing the building to the individual flat owners through the terms of their leases. That's because under their leases, the cost of fixing the building is something that will fall to them.
0: Yes, I can see the challenges in relation to this issue of liability. However, the difficulties concerning accountability don't seem to end there. It seems that leaseholders in these flats with fire safety issues often face a legal quagmire when attempting to bring a claim. Could you possibly outline the different routes available for a leaseholder to bring a claim if they find their flat has serious fire safety defects?
1: Mm, Sure. What we're really looking at here is the question of whether the flat owners can get someone else, the person at fault or who they regard as responsible for it, to pay. And the reality is that actually bringing a claim for this is is going to be extremely difficult. Someone who was interviewed by Jenny Priest, the person I mentioned earlier who'd been interviewing these holders, said this. So this is one of her interviewees. She said, you'd get more consumer protection buying a cheese sandwich than you do buying a leasehold. So there are really two issues again here. So the first question is, you know, who is at fault? And the second question is, having identified who is at fault, how, if at all, can leaseholders hold them to account? So there are three main players we might think are at fault or in some way responsible for the situation that leaseholders find themselves in. The first is the product manufacturers, the people who made the cladding, for example, who made it and marketed it. The second group are the developers and the builders and other professionals, the people who designed the buildings and built the buildings. And the third is the government. The government who, after all, have responsibility and have in fact done so, created the regulatory system which it is clear was not fit for purpose. How though can we translate the fault of these players into a potential legal claim? So, well, firstly, we can rule out the product manufacturers because there is no direct link between the manufacturer of a product and the leaseholder. They will have been bought and selected by other professionals involved in the process. And one of the things that emerged in the Grenfell Tower inquiry is that everybody is pointing fingers at everybody else. So everyone regards themselves as a, a player in a big system. And so if we just take the... Uh, the product manufacturers, the cladding manufacturers as an example, they might say, well, yes, we manufactured combustible cladding, but it's perfectly fine to use it in the right context. And what's happened is it's been used by other people in the wrong context. So product manufacturers are are not, under the existing law, going to be uh, a possibility for leaseholders to pursue. What about, the, the developers and other professionals? So here I think it's helpful to think about some private law claims. And there are a few possible causes of action that leaseholders might have. But having said that, it's always going to be really important to understand that in order to litigate, a huge amount of effort has to go in. It's very hard to bring a group of leaseholders together in order to, to bring an action, to bring a claim against a defendant. And there are all sorts of funding risks that would be associated with that. Okay, so now let's have a look at the idea of bringing a claim against developers or other professionals. What I'm going to focus on here is what we might call the substantive law claim in private law. There are various possible causes of action that leaseholders might have. And the most intuitive one is negligence. So the argument would be that a developer is meant to put cavity barriers in a building, for example, and has failed to install them. Clearly, that is as a minimum, a negligent act or failure to act. So surely they should be held responsible in the law of negligence. But the problem is they're not. And the reason for that is because of the House of Lords decision in Murphy and Brentwood, which would view any damages as being economic loss and therefore unrecoverable. So I have chatted to various colleagues to see whether or not Murphy and Brentwood might be something that could be challenged. Most are generally supportive of the outcome in Murphy and Brentwood and regard it as a good decision, but not everybody is. Some people think that actually it is a decision that's ripe for challenge, particularly in this, this context. But even if it were to be challenged, it would have a remote chance of success and would have to go all the way to the Supreme Court before it could be overturned or qualified. So that's not an option. So bringing an action in negligence isn't going to work for the leaseholders Some leaseholders might possibly have a claim for breach of contract, but only some. It will only apply to the leaseholders who bought the flat from the developer, not who, for example, bought a flat from a previous owner, a second-hand flat, so to speak. And it will also tend to only be the case if they bought the flat off plan, which means that it wasn't built when they contracted to buy it. And because of the fact that it wasn't built, the contract will have contained various warranties and so on, and there's likely to be some kind of warranty or promise in, in that contract that the building would be built in accordance with building regulations. But if the flat has already been constructed by the time the purchaser buys it, it is much less likely that that contract will contain those kinds of warranties. It's back to the cheese sandwich example. You get better consumer protection buying a cheese sandwich, than you do buying a leasehold. The most likely cause of action is actually under the Defective Premises Act of 1972. So again, I'm just gonna quote a bit of law at you here. So section one of the Defective Premises Act says this, a person taking on work for, or in connection with a provision of a dwelling, owes a duty to see that the work which he takes on is done in a workmanlike, or as the case may be, professional manner, with proper materials, and so that as regards that work, the dwelling will be fit for habitation when completed. Now this seems to cover the situation that a lot of leaseholders are finding themselves in, but it is uh, an act which appears to be relatively untested. There don't appear to be cases that are directly on point, and so bringing a claim isn't necessarily going to be straightforward. Furthermore, for the first hurdle and a serious hurdle for most blocks of flats has been that they're out of time. So we have limitation periods that say that actions have to be brought within a certain period of time and under the Defective Premises Act that limitation is six years. So unless you bring a claim within six years of the works being completed, which will usually mean the building being constructed, you will be out of time for bringing an action. And the problem is that obviously post Grenfell a lot of buildings discovered that they had fire safety problems years after they'd been built. Now, this particular problem, the limitation period, is actually changing. So under the Building Safety Act, and I think this is gonna come as a surprise for a a lot of lawyers who haven't been following the story, under the Building Safety Act, that limitation period is changing so that looking backwards is going to be back for 30 years. So whereas today, before that provision comes into effect, the limitation period under the Effective Premises Act will only enable you to bring a claim for buildings that were completed within the last six years. On the date that the Act comes into force at the end of June, it's going to be possible to bring a claim for any building that was constructed within a 30-year period previously. So this is a really significant change that's been brought in by the Building Safety Act. It won't go unchallenged by developers, so some of them have already begun chuntering about potential human rights claims, arguing that this, uh, in, in effect, a retrospective extension of the limitation period is going to breach their rights under the Human, Human Rights Act of 1998, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. I don't think that they would succeed in their challenge. But even if we assume that there is a claim, that let's assume that there's potentially a good claim under this Effective Premises Act and they're now not out of time, bringing a claim is never going to be easy. Because if you, if you just imagine what a claim would look like, let's say someone in a flat wants to bring a claim against the developer under the Defective Premises Act, they're realistically not going to act alone. They'll want to bring together other leaseholders in the block. And that in itself is often a challenge for people. To to bring enough people together who who share the same goal is is quite difficult. It's hugely time-consuming, and it can create quite a lot of interpersonal challenges between people who have different views on whether or not it's wise to bring litigation. It can be an extremely stressful period for people. It's also pretty financially risky. So in order to issue a claim, to bring a claim in the High Court, which is what this would require, there is a fee of £10,000. So simply to get the claim in the, it, off, off the ground is a £10,000 fee. But before you can do that, you'll have to have instructed lawyers. You're very likely, given the technical nature of these claims, to have had to instruct professionals who can examine the building, and so more and more money involved in order to issue the claim and of course success is never guaranteed and the risk is and this is quite i think it's quite a serious financial risk for the claimants if they lose they're at risk of paying the costs of the developer so it's not not an easy route to think of bringing um, a claim and just to give you one example there's a case that's recently settled called Naylor and dronequest this was a claim it was indeed a fire safety claim it was issued in spring of 2019 and it involved a large development of a thousand flats at New Capital Quay in Greenwich in South London. It's said to be the site, the largest development in Europe with ACM cladding. So, even though there were a thousand flats on the development, fewer than a hundred were actually involved in the legal action, the litigation. They brought various claims. The main claim is the Defective Premises Act claim, but there was also a contractual claim from some, some of the flat owners who'd been original purchasers who'd bought off plan from the developer. Anyway, that case is now settled, so we, we, we're not going to get to see a judge deciding how the Defective Premises Act applies in that context. But before the settlement, there had already been 10 court orders that were largely focused around case management issues, And three reported judicial hearings, even though the key substantive issue had not gone to trial yet. And so you can see from this that that actually litigation is never going to be quick and it's going to be horribly expensive. It's also risky and very emotionally draining. So that was looking at possible private law claims. Now, I've always thought that, you know, hang on, what we've got going on here is actually a bit of a, a failure of government as well. So we've got a clear, I think, regulatory system failure, as indeed the building safety minister has himself acknowledged. So it's clear that the government is in part responsible for the problem, and to some extent they have admitted that. But how can you translate that into a legal action? Well, is there any scope for judicial review? Really difficult to have a successful claim in judicial review, very difficult to pursue, but also even a successful claim uh, has a relatively limited impact in terms of what it can do. So the area I've thought a little bit more about is possibly bringing a claim under the human rights legislation. And the strongest claim is probably based around Article 2, which is the right to life. And this includes a duty to protect life, which doesn't solely concern deaths resulting from the use of force by state agents, but also includes a positive substantive obligation on states to take appropriate steps to safeguard the lives of those within their jurisdiction. And that can include two kinds of duties. The first is what I refer to as a big-picture general duty, which focuses on the state's obligation as an overseer to institute and maintain an effective system of deterrence against the threat to life. And the catastrophic regulatory system failure shows, in my view, that there has been a breach of that duty. Secondly, there's what we might call an operational duty, and this can require public bodies to take preventative measures when there's a known and specific risk. The operational duty may perhaps be of use in the context of a social landlord who's not doing enough to remediate its own buildings. Now, the bigger picture duty, which looks to sort of the role of the state in creating this system which has led to a regulatory failure, is actually going to be really difficult to translate into a legal action even though it's the only non-political way to try and hold the government to account. And so the reality is that if the government's going to be held to account in any way, the answer to that is political rather than legal. So back to your question, litigation's not really the answer. There is only one claim that's realistic for most under the Defective Premises Act, but even that is fraught with considerable risk.
0: Thank you for highlighting the different routes available. Which could provide legal remedies for leaseholders. Finally, could you tell us what is happening at the moment to fix the problems that we have discussed? What approach do you think is needed?
1: Oh, this is a really big issue and it's a really hard question to answer. What's happening at the moment is that there are a lot of people who are really anxious and very concerned about whether there really is going to be an end to this, both leaseholders but also I think some professionals. It's not been an easy time for people who are involved in managing these buildings and for building engineers, fire safety experts and so on. I think it's created a lot of, lot of difficulties for a lot of people. One thing that has the potential to make a big difference is the new approach that has been taken by the current Secretary of State, Michael Gove. He's engaged in what I I uh, rather casually referred to as arm wrestling. So he's entered into an arm wrestling battle with the developers. In January this year, he announced a new approach in which he says he'll force developers to pay to fix the cladding crisis. And this approach will involve various prongs through which he'll be tapping developers for money using a mixture of taxation and a yet to be introduced levy. In addition, and this is what we've seen so far beginning to happen, or at least beginning to be agreed, is that he will require developers to fix their own buildings, So the, one they, the, the buildings they have themselves put up that have now got problems. And the way he's gone about that is to get them to sign what's called a pledge, so it's often known as the Gove Pledge, in which they commit to remediate life-critical fire safety works. And so far around 40 developers have signed up for this, That sounds like quite a big number, but there are many, many more who have not signed the pledge. And the problem is no one's really sure what the pledge is going to mean in practice. It talks about life-critical measures, but people are worried that they may fix life-critical measures, but the buildings still may not get the rating required under the form I mentioned earlier, the EWS1, that means that they end up with a marketable flat. So fixing only a part of the problem is not going to be enough for leaseholders. The other difficulty with the pledge is, at the moment, it's just a pledge. um, It has no legal uh, significance, and so that pledge needs to be translated into some form of binding legal contract between the developers and the government, and the details of that will be really important, and we don't know what it's going to say yet. So the pledge will help, and it will help some these holders living in some buildings, but it's certainly not going to help everyone. The really difficult question, then, is which you asked me, which is a fair enough question, is what do I think needs to happen? I'm not entirely sure. I've always thought that litigation would not be the answer. So, for some time, the government was saying it's up to the uh, individual blocks to litigate, to hold those responsible to account. I don't think that's realistic because of the way, what we know about the way litigation works. But also, as I've already mentioned, the difficulties of, of finding that there is a cause of action. But nor I, I do I think is it fair to leave leaseholders and freeholders to try and sort out the mess themselves. And I think what, what we really need is, and what we have needed, I think, for a long time now, is for the government to adopt a different approach, whereby the government has a process for identifying the buildings that are most at risk, the most dangerous buildings, It ensures that those get fixed, and it does that by providing forward funding for the the fix. And then if the government believes there are others at fault or responsible for the reason why that particular building has problems, it's the government who should go after, let's call them the bad guys, rather than the individual leaseholders. The government has already put some money into solving the problem. It sounds like quite a lot of money, around £5 billion, but that's not enough. And it needs to do more, but I don't think that that's going to happen. So I think what we're now in is a sort of position where we know that things are far far from sorted. It's unclear how things are going to move forward, and I'm afraid that I think this is going to dog many leaseholders for many more years yet.
0: Thank you, Professor Bright, for your thought-provoking discussion on the anniversary of Grenfell, in particular. It's important to take the time to reflect on these issues still faced by the victims five years on from the crisis. These include the various hurdles faced when remediating their buildings to dealing with worries surrounding whether their flats will ever be fixed. It is evident that a new approach is necessary in order to provide remedies for leaseholders as litigation has failed to adequately do this thus far.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dorothea and Chen, for being here, for facilitating this recording. really appreciate all the thought that that you've put into this yourselves. And I hope that it will be helpful for people who are trying to understand the situation that we find ourselves in five years on from Grenfell. Thank you.
0: That was Professor Susan Bright speaking with us on the Grenfell crisis five years on. For more legal writings on the topic discussed, see Professor Susan Bright's blog, Housing After Grenfell. In addition, on the 14th of June, the anniversary of Grenfell, there will be a specific blog post released on the issues discussed in this episode. For more legal writings and discussions on other topics, visit the OUULJ's blog and read our annual publications. Thank you for joining us on this episode.